Um, if you have a Bible with you, would you please pull it out and turn to 1 Timothy, Paul's first letter to his friend Timothy. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to borrow one. There's some in these black chair pockets and the ends of the side aisles. And if you don't own a Bible, please, please keep that one. Um, 1 Timothy is towards the end of the New Testament. It's toward the end of Paul's letters. So after the big ones, Romans and 1 Corinthians, all the way down, after 1 and 2 Thessalonians, before you get to Hebrews, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we'll read that together in a moment. Um, but if you've, if you've been around church for a while, there's a word that you've probably sung maybe hundreds of times without really thinking about what that word says about yourself. I don't know if this is true anymore, if it's true everywhere, but where I grew up, probably the most recognizable Christian song was Amazing Grace. And um, even people who had never been into a church building probably could finish the first line of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, if someone called you a wretch, they called you wretched, you, you probably wouldn't find a lot about that to be complimentary, right? Wretched, a wretch, is not, that's not usually a word we use to describe ourselves. And yet every time we sing Amazing Grace, a wretch is what we say we are or were. Do you believe it? John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, absolutely did. So Newton was an Englishman, and like his father before him, he was a sailor. So he was a midshipman starting when he was 18, eventually a ship's captain before he had to retire from the sea at 29 because of a seizure that he had. But he wasn't just a sailor, he was on the crew of and the captain of slave ships. He was a captain in the slave trade. And, and so he served on these crews and among these rough sailors, he lost virtually all of his moral bearings to the point that even the sailors were like, this guy taking it a little too far. He, was, he just became a monster of a man. But during, during a storm at sea where he thought he might be lost, he began to reflect on his life. And he found a Bible on board and opened it and started to pray. And that night began a slow turn in his life towards trusting in Jesus and becoming a pastor, writing hymns, becoming a fervent abolitionist. When Newton called himself a wretch, he meant it with all of his heart. Can you say the same about yourself? Does, does that language seem a little too strong? I mean, Newton was a wretch, right? But he was a slave boat captain. We're not, we're not so bad. We may, you know, we, we're not perfect, but who is? Right? We've, we've made our own mistakes, but we've learned from them. We, we've hurt people we love, uh, but, but who doesn't do that? Imperfect, sure. We can own imperfect but wretch. Can we own that one? The author of the passage we'll be looking at this morning wouldn't have hesitated to use that word. And he knew what Newton knew, that until we know that we're wretches, we can't appreciate the greatness of the mercy of Jesus Christ. And until we appreciate mercy, we can't really enter into the joy and the praise that would overflow into a pen that would write, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. The author of this passage in 1 Timothy is the Apostle Paul. And this passage is his own testimony of amazing grace, his, his memory of mercy. So 
I'm going to read this. Why don't you follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen behind me? Let's look at this together. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so, we're so thankful to be together. And, and not just to be together, but to be together around your word, around this book that is you speaking, this book that is, that is your picture of yourself and of your son and of the life you're calling us into. Father, we ask that, that as we do, as we gather around your word, your living word, your active word, that you would send your spirit to help us to understand it and to own it and to respond to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to see in this passage how mercy came to Paul how mercy comes to all, and the, the right response to mercy, the response mercy demands. So mercy for Paul, mercy for all, and mercy's response. So first, mercy for Paul. Now the background for this letter is that Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus, which is a city in what is now Turkey, and he's left him there to oppose false teaching in the church. You can see this in in verse 3 of chapter 1. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Timothy was there to guard the good news about Jesus, to teach the true good news about Jesus so that everyone would know it. And if anyone opposed it, if anyone swerved from that good news, he was to oppose them. He was to, to guard the gospel. And, and Paul charges him for this. He tells him, Timothy, this is why I left you there. You have a charge. You have a responsibility. And as, as Paul thinks about Timothy's charge, his, his thoughts travel back to when he received his charge, to when he was called to be an apostle, which for him happened the same moment, the same day, when he met Jesus. This is what he says in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. That's what Paul was before he was the Apostle Paul. He was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. He didn't think of himself that way, but it was true all the same. He opposed Jesus. He opposed the good news about Jesus. He opposed the people who believed the good news about Jesus. When, when the first Christian was killed for believing in Jesus... Paul was there giving his approval. He was entering into the houses of people who believed in Jesus, dragging them from their homes and throwing them in prison. 
This is how he describes it later in life, looking back from Acts chapter 26. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Paul opposed the name of Jesus. He said, he said, Jesus is not the Christ. He is not God's son. He's nothing special. He cursed the name of Christ. He was a blasphemer. And, and he tried to get Christians to blaspheme too. He wanted them to, to renounce Jesus, to say, no, I agree. Jesus is nothing special. He wanted them to blaspheme themselves. He persecuted the church. He says he was an insolent opponent. And what that means is it's this, it's this uh, idea of being so puffed up with pride, so full of yourself that no one else's rights even matter to you. So you do violence. You do, you do just horrible wrong against people because of your own pride. That's what Paul's life was like. So what happened to him? The book of Acts tells us that Paul was on his way to a town called Damascus, which is in Syria. And he was on his way there because he wanted to get the Christians. He wanted to, you know, pull them out of their houses and throw them in prison. That was kind of his MO. And Acts says so vividly, it says that he was breathing threats and murder. You just, you picture this man walking on the road, just, just, he's just mumbling to himself. He's just obsessed. He, He can't wait to get these Christians and give them what they deserve. And, and so he's on his way to destroy the followers of Jesus, and Jesus meets him in the road. He sees this blinding light. He hears a voice say to him, Saul, Saul was what he went by then, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, he said to the voice, who, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And you just imagine this realization crushing down on Paul, that he's built his whole life around destroying the followers of Jesus, and Jesus really is the Son of God. I bet his life flashed before his eyes. He he thought, like, this is it. This is the end. I have blasphemed God's own Son, killed his followers, and what happened? Paul tells us himself. He says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of the church, but Jesus looked at him, this horrible person. Jesus looked at him, and he pitied him. He had compassion on him. Paul, he, he was ignorant. He didn't know what he was doing. He was acting in unbelief. He didn't, he didn't trust Jesus, and so he didn't know what he was doing. And that didn't make him not guilty. Paul describes himself in this passage as the foremost sinner, the worst sinner. It didn't make him not guilty, but Jesus saw it, and he had compassion on him, and he showed him mercy. Do you remember what Jesus said, what he prayed from the cross for the people who were crucifying him? He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That was the kind of compassion that Jesus showed to Paul. He had mercy on him. Now, until that moment, until the light flashed and the voice spoke, Paul didn't think he needed mercy. He thought he was righteous. 
Who was more zealous for God than him? Who was doing more to get rid of this, this awful sect of people who are saying that God became a man and died on a cross, that God was cursed and cut off? Who, who, was, who was more zealous for God than Paul? He didn't see his need for mercy. Do you see your need for mercy? No one here, I feel pretty confident, is a slave boat captain. No one here, probably, maybe, I don't know, is a persecutor of the church, like Paul. But deep down, we all have the same root problem that they do, that they did. The Bible says elsewhere, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And the reason we have all sinned is that we all, apart from God changing us, base our worth and our significance and our joy, we find our treasure in something other than God. And sometimes that comes out in ways that are just really scandalous, right? So you might, instead of building your life around God, loving God most, you might build your life around money, right? The, the security that comes from money, the comfort that comes from money, the, the prestige that comes from money, and that might show itself in your life by, um, by defrauding investors, right? Or by going along with business practices at your work that help boost the firm's bottom line. And if you get caught doing that, you'll go to jail, right? That's a big deal. But it also, the same heart issue, trusting in money, it, it might show itself in neglecting your kids because you have to work, you have to show your boss that you're the one who deserves the next promotion. It might show itself in chronic anxiety because you, you never feel like you have enough money to really be safe. And, and so like, so being a workaholic is much more socially acceptable than running a Ponzi scheme, but they both have this root of, in your heart, in the deepest part, what you really trust and treasure and look to for meaning is money, not God. And, and we do this with all kinds of things. We all do this. So you might build your life around a relationship that you just can't give up. You might build your relationship around your kids and their success. You might, you might be like Paul. You might build your life around religion. If I can be the most religious, then I'll be somebody. Then I'll know God loves me. Then I'll have a name that no one can take away if I'm the most religious, if I keep all the rules. We all do this with something. And, and the Bible calls this. So when we, when we take something else all the way in, we reject God as God. We say, you're not the great love of my life. This thing that you've made is. And the Bible calls that an idol an idol at the center of your life, and you're saying to God, you're fine, I like you, but you're nothing compared to this. If I, if I have this, I don't need you, and if I have you and not this, I'm nothing. This is what I really love. So before I became a Christian, so like late high school, early university, I was enslaved to the praise of people. I needed people to like me. I needed them to think that I was something. I, it's what I lived for. I, I, I looked at every decision through the lens of how will this make me look to a girl or to my friends or to whoever, whoever happens to be sitting nearby, right? If I, if I embarrassed myself, if I didn't make a good first impression, I would just agonize over it, replaying it again and again, and just breaking out in a sweat when I think about how I made a fool of myself in front of the people I wanted to impress, and I needed to impress people because then I would know that I had value. If people liked me, if they respected me, then I would be somebody. 
And so I needed a venue in which to prove myself, and I, I, I couldn't do anything in the sports realm, right? That's not hard for you to imagine, athletics off the list. I wasn't especially charming or likable. I wasn't going to be popular. So if I was going to make my mark, it had to be in academics. And so I just built my life around school, getting the best grades, getting the highest marks, the highest test scores. Because if I could be the best, then I was somebody. Then my life meant something. I don't know if you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, which is about two sprinters in the 1924 Olympics. Eric Liddell and Harold Abrahams. And there's a part in that movie where Harold Abrahams is talking about this 100-meter dash that he's going to run, that he, this race that he has to win. He says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, that lane, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. He was saying, the only thing that determines whether I have value or not is whether I win this race. If I win, I'm the king of the world. If I lose, I'm nothing. Everything I have stands or falls on this, this thing. And that's how I felt about school. Only if I'm the best am I worth something. What was I doing? I was, I was building my identity, my worth, my satisfaction, my security on something other than God. I was, I was saying to God, you mean nothing to me. And I, I was going to church. I was going to church and I would open my Bible sometimes, and it wasn't that I was this heathen, but my whole life was not built on God. It was built on achievement in school. I was an idolater. We all do this. We all need mercy, and Paul's life shows us that mercy is out there. So what did mercy do for Paul? First, it cleared his record. He says in verse 12, Christ Jesus our Lord judged me faithful. Now, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent, he was not faithful. He was the opposite of faithful. It says, he says, I was living in unbelief. I was living in unfaith. I was unfaithful. But Jesus looked at him and called him faithful. And that's what mercy does. It calls us what we're not. It calls us what we're not. He, 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 God called him faithful, not because he was but because God would make him faithful. He called him faithful based on what he was going to become, not based on what he was. And, and the gospel kind of works the same way. When we, when we trust in Jesus, though we've all sinned, we've all taken an idol into our hearts, God declares over us righteous, innocent. Not because we are, but because Jesus is, and Jesus took our sin so we could have his righteousness. He calls us what we're not. The Apostles' Creed which some churches recite in church. You might have grown up reciting this. It says, I love this. It says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's, it's such a hard thing to believe. We have to keep saying it, right? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? Paul did. He's so free, isn't he? he he's just free to tell the whole world what he was like before, before he trusted Christ. I mean, just imagine, just imagine this, that Paul became a Christian. He became an apostle. He had all these dealings with the church in Jerusalem. He would have to go to Jerusalem and look in the face the families of people who had lost loved ones to his persecution. He had to go to the widow of the person whose husband he threw into jail and cast his vote against to be killed, and he had to have fellowship with her. I mean, if he didn't believe in the forgiveness of sins, the the shame would just crush him. He believed in the forgiveness of sins. He's... 
his slate was wiped clean. So mercy cleared his record. Mercy also transformed his heart. So mercy calls us what we're not, and mercy makes us what we're not. Look at verse 14. He says, The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So grace overflowed for him, and it produced in his life what had never been there before. It produced faith. It, grace overflowed with faith. It gave Paul faith. He trusted in God when he never had before. It overflowed with love. Paul, he, before he met Jesus, he didn't love God. He didn't love his neighbor, but grace overflowed and produced that in his life. Have you guys seen the, the old Disney movie, Fantasia? Yeah, me either, right? That's, it's, the, it's the Disney movie everyone feels like they should own because it has classic music, which makes it a little more high class than The Little Mermaid, but it's the one that you never actually feel like watching. I hope, I hope I'm not offending any Fantasia fanatics here. You probably, you may not have seen it, but you might have seen one scene in it, which is called The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And in The Sorcerer's Apprentice, Mickey Mouse is the Sorcerer's Apprentice, and the sorcerer leaves him in charge of... Um, the lair. I don't, I don't know what a sorcerer has in charge of the lair. And so Mickey has these chores to do. And so he's got to carry water in buckets and fill this cistern. And he gets tired of it. And he thinks, I'm just going to use a little magic. And he bewitches a broom to carry the buckets for him. And the broom is emptying these buckets. The cistern is filling, but it starts to overflow. And Mickey doesn't know the magic to make the broom stop. So he attacks it with, a, with an axe. Right? He just like destroys this broom, breaks it into splinters, but then each of those splinters becomes a new broom. And all the brooms have buckets, and so now they're all moving this water. Just, it's, not, it's just overflowing from the cistern now. Like The whole layer is awash in water. It's just overwhelmed by the flood. And that is a little picture of what Paul means when he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. It doesn't just mean like it tipped out a little bit, like you spilled kind of on your way to your seat. It, the word there means super abounded. The grace of our Lord super abounded. It flooded my life. It, 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 didn't just, it didn't just forgive me, but it changed me. It transformed me from the inside out. It turned a blasphemer into a worshiper. And mercy didn't just forgive. It didn't just transform, but it strengthened Paul to serve. This is what he says in verse 12. He said, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Jesus strengthened him to serve. So Paul had been on his way to Damascus, right? He'd been on his way to oppose the church, to oppose Jesus, and God gave him the strength to become an apostle that served Jesus and served the church. It turned his whole life around. That mercy of God This is the mercy we need. But you might not be the person who has trouble imagining your need for for mercy. You might be the person who has trouble imagining that mercy could be for you. You feel like, um, well, that's fine for Paul, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm like when I'm not here. You don't know know where I woke up this morning. You You don't know what I left behind when I moved to Cayman. And if that's you, Paul has exactly you in mind. So secondly, let's look at mercy for all. Paul pulls back the camera so we can see that, that what God did in his life, what mercy did in his life, God wants to do for everyone. Look at verse 15, which Simon quoted earlier. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, the worst. Now, 
I have two small kids, which means I spend a fair amount of my time not being listened to. And so there are lots of moments in the course of the day when I have to communicate to a child, uh, it's dinner time, it's bedtime, where did you put my stapler? And I have to, like, I have to get down on his level and you know, hold his face in my hands, make eye contact and say, hey, are you listening to me? And when Paul says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, he is grabbing your face. God is grabbing your face and he's making eye contact and he's saying, this is important. Are you listening? It's almost as though Paul is saying, now I want you to repeat after me so I make sure that you understand. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He doesn't want you to miss it. So, I think the question is, anybody here a sinner? Because I have good news for you if you are. You don't need to raise your hands. Anybody here know that all the way down, what really motivates you isn't love for God? You've broken the greatest commandment, right? The great commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you don't. Something else is at the heart of your life. And that idolatry, that sin, shows itself in sins. It shows itself in in the things that you do that you know you shouldn't. You gossip at work about a rival for promotion because if you don't advance, you're nothing. And you, you put impossible pressure on your kids to achieve because you know that if they're not exceptional, that reflects on you. It means you're nothing. Or... Um, you stay in a relationship, you know what it, you know is wrong, you know that you should go, but you stay because you know that if you're alone, you're nothing. Your whole life is built on this thing that's not God. None of us love him most. All have sinned, right? We're sinners all. And if you know that's you, then what you qualify for is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to rescue you. He came to die so you could live. On the cross, Jesus became sin and suffered its punishment so in him we could become righteousness. He came to save us. And because he knows how hard it is for some people to believe that mercy could be for them, that God's forgiveness could cover what they've done, he saved Paul as an example of the greatness of his mercy. This is what he says in verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, That in me, as the foremost sinner, I'm the worst sinner, that in me, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So this is Paul's logic. He's saying, I'm the worst sinner. I killed Christians. I persecuted the church. And, And since the church is the body of Christ, I persecuted Jesus himself. And he had mercy on me So no one could say, I'm too bad. I'm too far gone. God could never accept me back. You're wrong. And and Paul's life is the proof. What word does does he use in verse 16 to to describe Jesus' patience? Perfect. So that he might display his perfect patience, his complete patience. Do you think you could exhaust the perfect patience of Jesus who forgave adulterers and prostitutes and extortioners? Do you think you could outsin the mercy of God? Richard Sibbs said there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There's always more. 
Paul's life is proof that no one is too sinful. And people who haven't trusted yet in Jesus aren't the only ones who need this reminder, right? Because even if, even if you trusted Jesus 40 years ago, you still, I still have this temptation to base our, our sense of acceptance, our sense of peace with God, our, our sense of his approval on how we're doing, how we're loving our family, how, how frequently we're reading our Bibles. But that's not how eternal life comes. He says, that, that he's an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Eternal life comes through belief, through trusting in Jesus, through, through turning to him in faith, not through working for it. Because Paul didn't work for it, right? The story isn't Paul was going to Damascus, and then he felt very bad about himself, and then he, then he changed his whole life, and he became a new person, and then, and then God forgave him. Jesus stopped him in the middle of persecution so that we could see that salvation comes through faith, through mercy. And, and when, we, when we trust in Jesus, I want to be so clear on this, when we trust in Jesus, his grace overflows and transforms us from the inside out. Your life will change. Your life needs to change, but you don't receive mercy because you changed. You receive mercy first, and the mercy changes you from the inside out. So can you, can you own this mercy the way Paul does. It's easier to say we are sinners than it is to say I'm a sinner. It's easier to say Christ died for us than it is to say Christ died for me. But Paul owns it. He says, I was a blasphemer. I received mercy. He says, I am the worst sinner, the foremost. In another place he says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know, do you know that Jesus has forgiven all of your sins? Can you say that? Until you can, you, until that, you know that he came into the world to save you, mercy won't lead you where it leads Paul, which is our last point, mercy's response. Where does remembering the mercy of God lead Paul? Look at verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Remembering mercy leads him to praise. He breaks out in song and he writes it down because he wants Timothy and all of us to join him in it. Two weeks ago, we had a child dedication up here at the front. Whenever we do that, we give each family a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, which retells the whole story of the Bible, showing how it's all about Jesus. And in that book, Lloyd-Jones says, she talks about the song of the stars, the song of creation. She said that, um, that when God made the world, that it just resonated and pulsed with praise to God. You think of you know, Isaiah talking about how the trees, of the, of the, the trees were going to clap their hands when Jesus comes. The whole creation sang the song of love to the creator. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed, when they turned from God, they were cut off from the song. Right? The birds still know it, the trees still know it, the stars still know it, but we're the ones who've forgotten. And when we trust in Jesus, when he brings us back, he, he welcomes us back into the song, back into the dance, back into this joy of knowing the love of the one who made us. We were made for the glory of God, to honor and praise him, and no other pursuit is going to satisfy us. And so Jesus came into the world, he didn't come just to forgive us, He did come to forgive us, but he came to bring us back in 
to the praise, to bring us back into what we were made for. Remembering God's mercy is meant to do for us what it did for Paul to lead us to praise. Mercy is an invitation to worship. Because this this God he describes in verse 17 came into the world for us. The king of the ages entered time. The immortal took on mortality and death. The invisible took on flesh and blood so we could see what God is like. The only God became man for you. He suffered crucifixion for you. He rose from the dead for you. He ascended into heaven and reigns at the right hand of God for you. Mercy can come to you freely because God paid for it with the life of his son. And when we know that, not just that it's true, but that it's true for me, then we'll want to praise him. In his epitaph, John Newton summed up his life this way. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Like Paul, Newton attributed the remarkable transformation of his life to one thing, the mercy of Jesus. He knew he was a wretch, but he also knew that Jesus came into the world to save wretches. And those two truths together fueled in him a life of praise and joy. As he neared death, he whispered to a friend, My memory is almost gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. May we be able to say the same. Let's pray. We want to praise you, King of the Ages, because you came into the world You humbled yourself, even to death on a cross, so that we could all be raised to life. So that we could all come back to the Father. God, I thank you for the greatness of your mercy, and I thank you for this picture of mercy, for this persecutor who was made an apostle, so that we can see that mercy is for us. And I pray that you would help each one of us to to respond to mercy, that that those who have not trusted in you would see their need for you and turn to you and find you to be a kind father. And and those who have, have known you but are living under a sense of your disapproval, under your condemnation, who, who feel like you're totally impossible to please, that they would that they would trust in your mercy, that Jesus came into the world for sinners. And I pray that that for each of us, that as we trust in you, that you would transform our hearts, that you would lead us into righteousness and obedience and joy and praise, and that you would use us, this body, in Cayman, to bring more praise and more glory and more honor to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.